This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is Latin America, Energy Poverty, and COVID-19. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. Brendan Duval is founder and managing partner of Glen Farn Group, an integrated energy infrastructure owner-operator with power and gas infrastructure lines of business in the investment-grade Americas. The company expects to expand into other world regions in late 2020. Because Mr. Duval is originally from Australia, has lived in the U.S. for 20 years, and much of his business operates in Latin America, he brought a unique perspective on the global energy industry to a conversation he recently had with Regina Mayer, Global and U.S. Head of Energy with KPMG. So, Brendan, thank you for joining my podcast today. It's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the Glen Farn Group? Good morning, Regina. Thank you for uh, inviting me onto your podcast. <clears throat> yes, I can. Uh, so I'm Brendan Duval, uh, founder and CEO of Glenfarn Group. Uh, we're an integrated energy owner-operator with two business segments, one in the power uh, side and one on the gas infrastructure side. Um, <clears throat> prior to launching Glenfarn, I spent a long career with uh, Macquarie Group, uh, Macquarie being an Australian infrastructure investor, my Australian accent probably gives gives it away. I'm originally from Australia. I spent 20 years in the U.S., uh, part of the original team that built up Macquarie's business in the U.S. starting in the year 2000. Uh, around nine years ago, we launched Glenfarn Group uh, to be a developer owner operator of energy infrastructure. Um, on the power side, as I mentioned, we have power assets predominantly in Chile, Colombia, and Panama. And our underlying power business uh, goes under the banner Enfragen. And we hope to cross to roughly two gigawatts of, of power this year, either in construction or operating. And uh, through that business, we've built up uh, a capability in Chile where uh, coming out of construction of some of our power plants will be the largest provider of grid stability and backup power in that country. Uh, in Colombia, we have um, also a very large um, power footprint, which results in us being uh, probably the largest importer of LNG by volume into Colombia. Uh, we also have some hydro assets in uh, Panama. And that business is focused on the energy transition at the demand end, which is um, focused around grid stability to provide a strong, stable uh, grid to allow renewables to grow, um, and we also have a renewables business that is is growing from hydro and in, into uh, solar. Uh, so that's on the power side. On the gas infrastructure side, we have a business that goes under the brand Alda Midstream, and uh, it has capabilities from the wellhead uh, through to the liquefaction of, of LNG. We have roughly uh, 4,000 miles of gathering and processing in uh, Texas and uh, in, in uh, New Mexico and, and a few other states. And we also have uh, two LNG export projects, 
uh, one called Texas LNG and one called Magnolia LNG and on a combined basis uh, they're a little over 12 megatons per annum of export capacity fully FERC approved and uh, we'll be breaking ground on, on those projects uh, expected to be next year. So think of us as an integrated um, uh, energy infrastructure owner operator predominantly operating in the Americas at the moment uh, but we will be opening an office in uh, Singapore and, and probably London later this year to help with the demand side for our LNG exports. Exciting uh, investments, and I do want to talk about LNG as well, but let's start with Latin America. Tell us more about your views on the opportunities in the region, so what types of energy assets, where do you have aspirations beyond you know, Chile, Colombia, and Panama? What are, what are some of the opportunities in the future? So Latin America is is really we can put it sort of into into three buckets in terms of um, economic strengths. Uh, there are the, the countries that are really really struggling. Uh, comes to mind uh, Venezuela. It's very hard to do business in in a country like that, and so that's, right. that's not not a focus for us. We then have some of the strong economies such as uh, Brazil and Argentina, but, but quite volatile. And um, we're, not, we're not brave enough to um, uh, be investing there at the moment. Um, so we're focused on what I call the tier one economies or the investment grade economies, which is Chile, uh, Colombia, uh, Mexico would be open to Mexico, uh, Panama, Peru, which are all investment grade. And the predominance of, of those are actually OECD. Um, in those countries, we see tremendous um, demand growth for, for, for electricity and energy. Uh, when you compare all of those countries to the US or Western Europe, uh, the demand per capita is still less than half what you'd see in, in countries like Western Europe or, or North America. So as those economies develop, the spending habits and the wealth of the individuals increase, the increased demand for electricity um, is really strong and it, and it exceeds normal economic and population growth. So, so they're strong growing economies. All those countries are very focused on uh, every extra megawatt that they install where possible, it is a low or, or zero carbon solution. And so um, many programs are in place, whether it's government induced or corporately sponsored, where, where corporates are procuring uh, renewable PPAs. Um, the, the wave is to introduce more and more renewable, which is predominantly solar and wind. Um, the hydro is hard to develop at the moment because the other renewables are becoming so cost-effective. Um, so new development in, in hydro is hard. Uh, and what we're seeing is the uh, cost of, of installing megawatts, including in Latin America, but globally, particularly for solar, are dropping. And so the growth in renewables is putting another sort of pressure on the grid and, and uh, uh, the need for what we call backup power or grid stability. And these are cost-effective power plants that receive a monthly payment for being available and they dispatch at times of grid stress. So uh, in a lot of these economies, they already have a lot of hydroelectric. And in, a dry, in the dry season, 
uh, the hydro doesn't run much and therefore there's less electricity available from that form of renewable. And then you actually go through years where it's very dry uh, and it's, you're not just in the dry season, you're in a, a dry or a drought year. And so you could imagine the complexities of after the sun going down and the solar's not on, you're in the dry season of a dry year and it's not very windy, you need power plants that can come on quickly and turn back off when the renewables come back on and that's grid stability, uh, backup power. And so we see ongoing opportunity there as well as ongoing opportunity in, in, in solar. And what are the power sources for the backup power? So the preferred approach wherever gas is available um, uh, is gas-fired power. So that's that sort of call it the, the preferred route. In remote areas in, in both most of the countries we're focused on, there are pockets of uh, grid stability that are needed and at nodes that it need where there is no gas pipeline, there's no gas import terminal. And so in those examples, other forms of liquid fuel, predominantly diesel, um, are installed. Uh, but over time, we're finding opportunities to actually convert some of our plants to, to gas where the gas comes in via truck, either LNG or compressed natural gas. Um, now, as we look forward, that grid stability um, can be provided uh, physically or technically, I should say, by batteries, but we have to break up grid stability into different time segments. And uh, grid stability for very short-term, millisecond, by the second, even possibly by the minute, batteries are, are excellent for that. But installing them requires a regulatory regime so they can be remunerated. And those regulatory regimes take time to be developed and they're slowly being analyzed in, in the countries in Latin America, but they're not fully developed. And then you have to look at grid stability that is for multiple hours of the day. And typically batteries cut off around four hours. So if, 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 it's, if it's at nighttime when the sun's gone down and there's uh, a transmission line has gone down, then you need some sort of thermal plant connected to a, a fuel source. Uh, and then there's grid stability that runs for multiple months uh, in the event there is a drought or a dry season. Again, typically that's also provided by, by a thermal a gas turbine, for example. And um, those are, you know, really, really short-term, medium-term and long-term. Batteries are excellent for the super short-term uh, so long as the business model is there to, to remunerate. Um, and our grid stability business um, plans to play across all of those so long as the, uh, the, the revenue model is, is up to our, our sort of economic return hurdles. Right. Well, it's fascinating, and thank you for going through that detail because I'm pretty passionate about energy poverty as a, as a global challenge as well, right, and people being able to have access to reliable and affordable electricity as a driver of wealth creation. So I would imagine your ability to stabilize the grid so that people can have electricity, especially in today's world where we're sheltering in place in a lot of places, is a big part of driving social progress. Could you say more about social progress activities and, and how your business fits in? Well, it fits in in multiple ways, and, and Regina, I'm glad you, you sort of raised that comment. Um, being a, an important member of um, uh, the community, the current environment is, is quite an interesting uh, 
uh, uh, topic to discuss. So we have multiple touch points with the community. At the highest uh, end, um, our power plant technicians and our power plant uh, operators are really frontline workers. Um, and we've done a number of um, town hall, virtual town hall meetings with our team in Latin America, really thanking them and encouraging them for the, for the effort to get to the power plant every day and making sure it's available. Because if you have a power outage in this um, time when so many people are in hospital and needing of um, uh, uh, medical support in an air-conditioned environment, access to electricity, uh, the stable grid is super important. Now, then you look at the role we play over time where we build our power plants. Um, there's an economic growth and an economic impact and job creation. And uh, that in itself is something where we spend a lot of time with the community leaders in, in the towns and villages that we're in. And then finally, the ability for an economy to continually lower its cost of electricity, but in a stabilizing way, allows that country or that region to be more competitive on a global scale for every type of um, service, whether it's attracting investment to the country that uses electricity, or whether uh, some product that's being exported that, that has electricity as part of its cost base. And so all of those things together, we, 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 we are very proud of, of the role we play in those countries in, in contributing at a multifaceted basis to, the, to the, you know, the, the enhancement of those communities and economies. Absolutely. Right. Ventilators can't run without electricity and our utility right. workers have been true essential services and a definition of the new front line. And it's terrific right. that you're driving it in, in a, a part of the world that doesn't necessarily um, have that kind of stability. Let's pivot and talk about climate change. Right Before COVID-19 hit, that was one of the hottest topics, how we mitigate uh, climate change through the energy transition. And you, you talked about the complexity of delivering reliable, affordable power with the intermittency of, of, um, of renewables. But what's your view on the impact COVID will have on the momentum behind addressing climate change? Do you think it stays at the forefront, or does it move to the back burner? Well, look, I think, I think none of us know exactly how long it's going to take to, to, to contain or learn to live with and or manage COVID, but uh, I'm, I'm an optimist and, and I do believe in, in the capability of the world to, to deal with these things. And so, you know, whether it's 12 months from now, 18 months, 24 months, we will get back to what I would call normal economic growth and normal energy demand. Uh, and and it's probably not less than a year, but it's probably not longer than two years, I think. Um, climate change is a 50, 100-year problem that has to be solved uh, on a daily basis. And while I think a lot of our thought leaders globally and our brightest scientists and brightest uh, politicians are focused on the, the COVID right now, the need for, for stable climate change policies um, hasn't changed. And if you think about building infrastructure and planning electricity grids, planning elect uh, gas production um, cycles, planning LNG construction, these are multi-year, 
five, ten year cycles. Um, so for all of us that are planning what our next investment cycle is and, and going through a permitting process, we haven't necessarily changed it. It may have slowed down, um, and it could have slowed down for two reasons, right? Firstly, on a very instantaneous basis, um, getting permits approved, getting engineering drawings updated, getting work crews on site, a lot of that is, is slowed down um, days, weeks, months due to people working from home, people being extra careful with the COVID. But that's, that's, that's time delay, right? Um, some investment cycle um, have been delayed because large corporations, banks, investment firms, some of them are being extra cautious investment decisions today. But again, that's maybe a slightly longer time frame, but I don't think it's changed the trajectory or the need or the thinking of anyone. Um, these are important issues, climate change, and I think just everyone's focused today now on the near-term issue of COVID, but medium and long-term, everyone's back to, to getting these stable, low-carbon solutions implemented and managed. To totally agree. One of the things, though, we are seeing in other parts of the world, Europe in particular, is that stimulus funding is around green stimulus and accelerating yeah. those regions into um, the, uh, the energy transition. In the U.S., it's notably absent. Is it present in Latin America, uh, green stimulus? What's, it, what's the landscape like there? So what we're finding in um, the parts of Latin America where I'm, are most active, which is which in the larger economies, the two larger ones at Chile and Colombia, programs that, that allow and or encourage renewable energy, it's less about government stimulus and it's more about constantly updating and supporting and defending sound regulatory regimes that naturally attract uh, the dollars in, into the market. So it's less about running a budget deficit and, and providing subsidized dollars to renewable energy developers. And it's the government just ensuring that the regulatory regimes continually updated, uh, they're sensible, they're stable, and in inverted commas, investable. Um, but in general, Regina, what you're seeing with renewable energy now, it is a straight out winner um, economically uh, without subsidies, uh, particularly in Latin America where power prices are a little bit higher than the rest of the world. And so renewable energy doesn't really need a subsidy. It, it, the market price of electricity is strong enough to support, you know, for example, solar. Um, and so the government's uh, uh, supporting with regulation as opposed to cash, cash injection. Oh, interesting. So that's, I mean, I know our US clients would love to be in that kind of a position where you don't need subsidies to declare winners or losers. That's right. And then let's turn our attention to LNG. Yeah, you have two U.S.-based LNG export investments, one in Texas, one in Louisiana. But we've seen the price for LNG collapse. Uh, what do you think the future holds for U.S. LNG, and can it stay competitive given the drop in oil price that we've experienced? So, you know, I think um, the U.S., even a bad day in the U.S., uh, in the economy of the U.S., or, or infrastructure performance in the U.S., is still probably one of the best days relative to any other country. And, and that's due to the, 
political stability. I know we all have laughs about uh, uh, the political debates that go on in, in this great country. But in reality, compared to the rest of the world, the US is still uh, a beacon of, of democracy and a beacon of stability. And so being able to buy uh, molecules of gas from a, from a country like the United States is still a priority for a lot of LNG buyers globally. Um, as a hedge or comparison against other markets and also other transportation routes to get to market. Uh, so fundamentally, um, US LNG will be uh, sought after. Um, the uh, price of uh, LNG, uh, you've got to remember that still predominant volume of LNG is bought under long-term contracts. Um, and the spot price for LNG really is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the volume of LNG that's transacting. Uh, so um, when uh, uh, global demand for energy has sort of call it the COVID-19 cap lift off it, uh, we'll see demand for electricity, which results in demand for LNG. We see investment cycles kicking back off for LNG regas facilities. The, the, the supply-demand, sort of call it mismatch we're seeing at the moment, um, 12 to 24 months from now, that, that, that sort of mismatch is gone and LNG prices are then kicking back up. Uh, Long-term buyers have to, for, 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 for all obvious reasons, manage a book of um, LNG import and, and they can't just expose the 100% of a country or a major buyer's offtake to spot markets. So uh, they all have to build a book of offtake or a book of buying gas. Um, and we'll see over time uh, the price stabilizing because the world does need more LNG and LNG has to be uh, uh, funded with dollars and dollars need a rate of return. And just like any other market, they, they do get back to a point where they can attract and will attract new investment because the global demand for gas is the way to transition overall in the long term to, to a lower carbon global energy matrix. But does the financing structure change? Because the, the whole take or pay contracting notion seems to be fading and the news has been about a number of high profile contracts being broken. What, what, what would you say about that phenomenon and, and how financing might be restructured? So that's another benefit of, of doing LNG projects in the United States. It's the greatest capital market in the world. Um, it's the strongest capital market in the world. And that results in the most sophisticated financing solutions being available in a politically stable region. So as uh, 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 infrastructure financing evolves, um, it will evolve to support the need of the end user, and if the end user's needs change and they want medium-term, short-term, uh, that infrastructure facilities financing will evolve. And I draw an example, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, um, power plants in the United States were all part of integrated utilities. Then um, federal regulation allowed for independent power producers to, to evolve, and there was a, it was a bit like a gold rush in the 80s. Um, but right. that was where 25-year offtake agreements was the only way to, to finance. And um, now we've evolved where power plants are traditionally built in the U.S. Um, 
these thermal plants um, where uh, you know the, the debt and the equity markets accept uh, a merchant exposure and you can buy hedging five years out um, and financing takes place. Uh, so there's an example of an evolution that started with just long-term take or pay and, and now um, it's a much more dynamic market. And, and I think we'll see the U.S. leading the way in a more dynamic capital market um, solution to, to LNG projects. That's a really interesting comparison. But do you, do you have a view as to what that financing structure might look like? So, too um, murky. yeah, so I think, I think it depends on um, uh, the developer, uh, who their financial partners are, and what their offtake looks like. And it really will go through a, a, a sort of a phase of situational need, and and then over time develop into a more sort of sort of generally ex accepted new new model. We're, you know, I don't want to name names. We're already seeing some well-known projects in the U.S. The construction arrangements are slightly different now. Their their offtake agreements are slightly different now, and they're getting financed. And so that the evolution is already underway. And um, you know, we pride ourselves at Glen Farm on on um, a lot of our power plant financings in Latin America. We're first off, one off. We we, we establish new market norms for financing. Um, uh, so we think we can be part of that that transition in financing structures in the LNG market as well. Well, I will await that evolution um, with interest. So thanks for that. What about renewables? So we've seen the oil price collapse. Yeah, we had the, the epic negative $37 for WTI settle on April 20th, and now we're hovering in the low 40s or you know high 30s. What does low oil price for longer potentially mean for renewables? Is that a threat to renewable development in the U.S.? Well, look, I think I think um, the the momentum for renewables is is really driven. Economically, renewables uh, are quite competitive on a levelized cost of, of energy. Because remember, um, a cost of electricity is not just its marginal cost, right? So when you think of um, oil or gas or another uh, 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 index that influences a, a liquid or a, or a gas fuel, um, you also have capital recovery costs, right? And the capital cost of uh, thermal power plants really has sort of bottomed out many, many years ago. The capital cost of renewable uh, wind, it's, it's dropping in, in uh, land-based wind, has sort of started to levelize. Um, offshore wind, it's still dropping. The cost is dropping. Uh, but solar continues to drop at dramatic rates. Um, and so you may see sort of a, a, a period of time where um, economically, uh, a thermal-based fuel um, sort of is, is sort of competitive uh, again, but but that fuel is is more important for the grid stability side of things, and less about just what's the lowest cost of uh, electricity. So that's that's sort of part A, which is you know renewables, particularly solar, will continue to get more competitive, and and we're bidding out some solar now, and we've just seen in six months just just the price per megawatt drop. Um, what the other side you'll see is we just saw um, over the last couple of weeks two tech giants, Amazon uh, and Apple, continuing advertising campaigns of their low-carbon 
solutions. Um, and so that's not a price decision. That's that's a that's a that's a social uh, ESG decision. And so investment in renewables has to continue. Um, and um, that's not necessarily a cost. That's a that's a sort of a board of directors, shareholder, social um, decision. Uh, and um, so, so I, I don't necessarily see the, the 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 shift changing, speeding up, or slowing down with where prices are right now. Um, I see the the level of investment around renewable and or thermal assets really as more of a a grid stability and a grid construction part A and part B is the buyers of these electrons, you know, are they demanding renewable? Um, and, and we see both of those at the moment. Right, fair point. And I have noted with interest the advertising campaigns that, that you mentioned. So let's close with, I know these are tough times, um, but you actually put a time frame out when you think things will get back to normal, which was very encouraging. Uh, but we, as you pointed out, we know it won't last forever. So. What positive message would you leave in conclusion for our energy industry listeners? Well, you know, if you if you look at the world, um, even just over the last hundred years, and we all look at the, the the challenges, whether it's our generation or the generation before us have gone through, whether it was major droughts that started, you know, depressions, world wars, even the last uh, pandemic, uh, the Spanish flu in. 2019-18, um, we're here today with uh, still sitting in a world that has had the greatest amount of um, shift from people in poverty to out of poverty, despite all of those world events taking place. Um, and I think the world today uh, is positioned with so much cash and money and capital markets available to either bring vaccine and or uh, therapeutics to market to, 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 to manage the COVID-19, that in itself creates a new economic growth? Or is it um, investment in ways just to manage living in a new world order? Um, humans are an amazing group of people or amazing race uh, uh, species, I should say. And that's we, we do adapt and we will adapt and there's going to be pain along the way, but History, history has proved uh, the human race has adapted to every single challenge it's ever faced, and um, it will adapt to this. And and in in reality, I'm I'm amazed at actually in many ways how well um, uh, people have embraced this. We've had pockets where people haven't embraced it, but but in general, I think it's it's really encouraging how how well the world has responded to something that we hadn't seen for 100 years other than a in Asia, for example. So uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm long on, 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 on the human race, <laughs> and I'm investing in the human race, and, and we'll, we'll get there. I love that optimism. I know we will overcome. So, Brendan, thank you again so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Okay, Regina, thank you, and I've enjoyed it, and I look forward to, to talking again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on Latin America, energy poverty, and COVID-19. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.